Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back everyone to the Auxiliary Chamber. Today I'm thrilled to introduce the first episode in a two-part series with Gunjan Sharma and Florentine Voss from Volterra Fieta. In the two episodes, we're going to discuss first the law and disputes surrounding deep seabed and space mining, and secondly, the life and experiences of a lawyer practicing public international law. These two episodes come from the same conversation broken in two. As an introduction to the guests today, both work at Voltaire Fieta, an elite global law firm in London and the only firm in the world specialized entirely in public international law. Florentine Voss, Voltaire Fieta associate, is dual qualified. She is a member of the Dutch and the English bar. She holds a law degree from the University of Cambridge, as well as a BA in Dutch law and an LLM in public international law from the University of Leiden. Gunjan Sharma, a Voltaire Fieta partner, is a New York qualified attorney and holds a Juris Doctorate from the New York University School of Law and a Bachelor of Science in Foreign Service from the Wall School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. With an absolute wealth of experience that I cannot do justice to, it is an honor to talk to both of them, who have advised in multiple large-scale and complex international disputes, represented states before the International Court of Justice, private entities and states and numerous investor, state arbitrations, and are experts in, amongst other things, deep sea mining and space law. For this reason, and without further ado, here is part one of our conversation, diving into deep sea, space, and disputes. Welcome back, everyone, to the Auxiliary Chamber. I am absolutely honored to be here today with Florentine Voss and Gunjan Sharma from Volterra Fieta. How are you both today? I'm very well, Bram. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well. We're doing quite well, Bram. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules. As we had already briefly mentioned, you're both incredibly busy right now. So thank you for taking the time. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at a couple things. We're going to be looking at deep sea mining, space law, mining in space, and then the life of a lawyer practicing public international law. For this reason, the episode is going to be split into two sections. The first one looking at deep sea mining and space law, and then the second one being more of the personal experiences. If you're both okay with it, we can maybe already start. And I think my initial question would be diving straight into deep sea mining. And could you maybe start off with Explain it to us a bit about what is deep sea mining and where should we really think about when we're looking at it? Yeah, sure. So what is deep seabed mining? Deep seabed mining is the exploration and exploitation and final extraction of minerals from the deep seabed. And this takes place um, in the national jurisdiction of states on the continental shelf and extended continental shelf, as well as in what's called the area which is the area beyond national jurisdictions of states. Um, we'll probably come to that a bit more about how that's regulated through the International Seabed Authority. But it might be interesting first to also know what, what, what sort of minerals are being mined there. But what you can find in the international deep seabed is gold, cobalt, zinc, rare earth materials. And these are all positioned in what's called polymetallic nodules or polymetallic sulfides and ferromanganese crust. I will invite you to Google that and find some amazing photos of these very particular structures who are filled with these types of minerals. The amounts are massive. For example, only in terms of the amount of gold in the international deep seabed, there is about 150 trillion US dollar worth of gold in the area. The amounts are incredible. 
that really is in, in a nutshell deep seabed mining. I think it's, as you mentioned already, interesting that the reason why maybe it's come to such public attention, of course, is that these minerals can be really important in the renewable energy movement and, and why these have become so important. Have you noticed that more attention has moved towards this? Maybe as also a lead into what the international framework is. One of the major developments in mining in the last 10, 20 years, Bram, is that the technology to mine and extract minerals, including oil and gas and, and the minerals Florentine were discussing from the seabed has increased exponentially. They've gotten much better at discovering minerals and oil and gas. They've gotten much better at drilling for them. They've gotten much better at profitably extracting them. So on the one hand, one of the reasons there's so much attention being paid to maritime areas and the extraction of resources from maritime areas is the technological innovation that's occurred in the last 20 years. This is converged with precisely what you're talking about, which is that economic development, uh, the growth of the third world in economic terms, the increasing demand uh, for commodities means that there's just a surge in demand for minerals. Renewable energies is a great example. The, the truth of the matter is that to manufacture a renewable car takes much more in terms of mining, in terms of minerals, in terms of pollution than to manufacture an oil guzzling car. The reason yeah. renewable vehicles are better for the environment is that over time they just consume less gasoline. But what becomes apparent, and we're talking about iPhones, we're talking about renewable energy vehicles, we're talking about the batteries, we're talking about solar paneling, is that all the minerals required to make these most advanced technologies are subject to surging demand. At the same time as the technology to extract them from the sea has increased. And that's why there's so much attention now being focused on seabeds and drilling and mining in the sea. With then this technological increase and the surging demand, I think the first question that, that really comes to my head is maybe what is the legal regime then that really regulates this? Who's able to do it? Who's able to use these technologies? And then also maybe is this legal regime actually prepared for the challenges that it's going to face with this increasing demand and technological capabilities? Florentine is by far one of the world's experts on deep seabed mining in, in the deep oceans outside national jurisdiction. So maybe at Florentine, if, if you don't mind, I'll give an overview of the national jurisdiction over sea, sea mining, and you could give the much more interesting overview of how you, what states can do and what companies can do outside national jurisdictions. Good idea, Gunjan. You, you go first with um, national jurisdictions. Okay, perfect. So, Brad, the the world's oceans are governed by a series of legal principles that are laid down in a convention called the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS. And UNCLOS provides that each country that borders a sea or an ocean or a large body of water can exercise sovereign, exclusive sovereign jurisdiction over three maritime areas. The first being the territorial sea, which is defined as about 12 nautical miles off its coast. This is what we understand as, you know, the, the 
territorial sea of a country. And historically, the reason it's 12 miles nautical miles is because that's how far a cannon can shoot. So that's how far you could control militarily from your port. That's right next to the coast. What UNCLOS did is establish also that a country could extract and uh, develop resources that are located about 200 nautical miles off its shore as well. So while it exercises jurisdiction such as criminal jurisdiction, 12 nautical miles off its shore, up to 200 nautical miles, including both in the water column, which is the water, and including also in the seabed, which is the, the actual bed of the ocean, um, the state can extract resources exclusively. The last bit that Florentine mentioned what's called an extended continental shelf. There are some geographical features which let you go beyond the 200 nautical miles for the purposes of the ocean floor, which is a complex area that we don't have to go into. But effectively, the way nation states can extract resources for their own benefit is defined by UNCLOS as, a, as being 200 nautical miles off their coastlines, give or take. And that's, and in those areas, the state itself, the government can establish all the laws, the regulations and the licenses it has to for the extraction of the resources, subject to certain international norms, such as not polluting your neighbors. That's all very interesting. That's very well established. That's happening a lot around the world today. We're looking at $300 billion worth of projected oil in the Caribbean, uh, in the Caribbean Sea, just off the coast of Guyana. There are tens of millions of barrels of oil off Africa that just were not available before because they were technologically impossible to get to. That's national jurisdiction. Deep, real deep seabed mining, though, the, where the money can really be for these minerals, which hasn't been exploited, is outside national jurisdiction, in the, in the waters further off, where no country has jurisdiction. And that's what Florentine can really talk to and, and explain. Thank you. That'd be great then to look at what is this uncharted territory, let's say. Sure. I'll, I'll talk a bit about the um, international legal regime there. Um, again, it starts off with the convention Gungeon mentioned, UNCLOS. And in addition to UNCLOS, there's also a 1994 agreement, a special agreement, which has many additional provisions which govern deep seabed mining. Um, UNCLOS and 1994 agreement really define and set up this body called the International Seabed Authority. That is an autonomous international body, which is really the custodian of this area beyond national jurisdictions. They regulate all the mining activities there. So if you want to mine a deep seabed, you need to get a license from the International Seabed Authority. The International Seabed Authority is also the body which has been delegated with actually coming up with the more detailed regulatory system. And so far, they've done so for the exploration phase of mining. They have three different set of rules for some of those minerals I mentioned before. So you've got different rules for nodules, you've got different rules for the sulfides, and then different rules for the ferromanganese crust. Now, as I said, they have rules in place for exploration but not yet for exploitation. And this is really where all the debate is currently taking place because the technologies are developing so fast as Gundy was describing and companies are getting ready to start the exploitation phase. The rules aren't there yet. Those are currently still being debated in an organ of the International Seabed Authority called the Council. 
in the council you have representative of 38 states and they've split themselves into working groups to work on different elements of the regulations. And as you can imagine, these debates are really heated because states have so many different interests and all trying to come to a compromise on what will be the best way to start mining activities, get these mining minerals out, have all the amazing commercial potential and, and benefits that deep seabed mining can bring. And at the same time, making sure that they do so at a pace and in a way in which we can protect the environment. Now, in addition to that, they're also doing this under tremendous time pressure because as, as you might have seen the news, Nauru has done this thing, what they call pulling the trigger, which means that in June last year, they sent a formal letter to the International Seabed Authority and said, can you please finalize the deep seabed mining code, so that's exploration and exploitation rules within two years time. And if the International Seabed Authority doesn't, isn't able to get it done in two years time, then the various deep seabed mining countries can apply to get a license to start exploiting the deep seabed without those rules yet being fully, fully finalized. So yeah, the ISA is working incredibly hard at this moment to make sure they can make that deadline. I guess as we're looking at this almost ticking, I would say time bomb, let's say if it then they can't reach that deadline, we're looking at such important resource mining. I thought it'd also be interesting to look at the parallels with commercial resource mining in space. I think, as you'd already mentioned, you're both experts in a variety of topics. And I think you also do a lot of work in space and with commercial resource mining there. And I was wondering if you could maybe also explain some of the parallels between deep seabed mining and space mining, as far away as those entities might be. It, it's fascinating, Graham, because one of the things that's happening in the next few decades, I project, is that just in the same way the technology to drill and mine in the sea is developing so quickly, we will come to the point where there will be the technology to drill and mine from asteroids, from comets, and from other extraterrestrial bodies in space. And if you look, Florentine was giving an example of the, I think, $15 trillion, right, of gold in the sea, right, Florentine? That was the number you, you said? Yeah, I can tell you what it is for space as well. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say the, the numbers are... Well, why don't you go ahead for it? What's the, what's the number of, what's, how, what's the value of gold in space? It's... Oh, actually, I don't know gold, but I know that the, um, the first overestimate of only the biggest asteroids uh, mine, so that's only one of many, many, many asteroids, is 27 trillion US dollars, which is a number with 18 zeros. That's almost un unimaginable. So it's three million times the GDP of the Netherlands. And we're getting there, Brad. That's, it's, it's slow, it's steady, but the government authorities in Europe, the ESA, the government authorities in the Americas, I, I promise you the Chinese space authorities, I promise you the Indian Department of Space, I promise you, they might not be talking about the Russians, are looking at how do we begin today to set up the industries in our own countries to exploit these resources? Yeah. And it's, no. it's not only even for bringing it back to Earth to use. Don't forget that these minerals are also really important for further space exploration. In space, you can also find helium and oxygen, things you need to establish a base on the moon, as well as to travel and establish a base on Mars. And so to come back to your question, Bram, what are the similarities between the sea and space? The huge similarities is that the sea and space are, are what we could call in Latin terra communis right? They don't belong to any one country. 
nobody has exclusive control over the deep sea and nobody has exclusive control over deep space. So the regulation of these massively important economic potentials is left to a field of law called public international law, which is a law that governs relations between countries in such areas as terra communis, like the sea or the space. So the, that's the field of law, a very niche field that Florentine and I practice it on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's the reason we are experts in, in deep seabed mining, or uh, Florentine much more than me on deep seabed mining, but Florentine and I both equally on, on space law. It's because it's, it's an area of potential human activity that is currently lightly governed and will one day be governed not by a legislature, not by a parliament, not by a president or not by a, a monarch, but by treaty, by agreements that countries are gonna to have to reach together and accords that they're gonna to have to meet. And so right now, for instance, mining in space is legally ambiguous. Uh, until the possibility of mining emerged technologically as, as something foreseeable, it was somewhat assumed in the community, in the international, public international law community, that there could not be private exploitation of space resources, that it belonged to all of mankind, and so something had to be done so there's no private exploitation. I think the view, that view has, has moved on. And commentators now are saying that actually... Um, and some, some countries are signing up to this in the form of, of less adopted treaties governing outer space. But actually, maybe a private company can, if it gets the technology, go out there and start a mining operation in space. And go ahead. Sorry, Ganjin. Uh, I'm disagreeing with you there. And I think that you're also tapping into what's actually one of the key differences between deep seabed mining and space mining, which is that in deep seabed mining, you have that regulatory structure, you have the UNCLOS convention, you have the 1994 agreement, and you have the International Seabed Authority setting up these regulations. In space mining, you still have that ambiguity that Gunjan is talking about. There is no international organization particularly specially defined to define and come up with all these specific regulations that you need to govern uh, such a blossoming industry. You have states really disagreeing, some setting up, some signing up to the Artemis Accords, which very clearly states that you can um, have private development in space, uh, while other states are still members of the Moon Treaty, which, again, as going to alluded to, is this quite an old treaty that many states haven't signed up to, and that treaty says, no, you cannot have private mining. Um, so the key difference really there is, is the level of regulation between mining in space and deep seabed mining. And, and frankly, we're much closer to deep seabed mining occurring. Um, we're already in exploration phase than we are to space mining. Uh, but the converse of that is that there's a, there's a great, and properly there should be environmental regulation of mining to ensure ensure that it's, that it's done professionally, it's done ethically, it's done sustainably, sustainably as much as possible. But there's a backlash against any mining on the planet Earth, um, whether in land or at sea. Uh, there is a, a view, I think, from many environmental agencies, very environmental NGOs, that they have to be opposed to mining as a whole. Although that, that doesn't work 
given what we're talking about, but the great demand for minerals in new technologies that we need and that will lift so many out of poverty. But so there are calls in the deep seabed for moratoriums and all extraction. There are calls for effectively every mining project to be shut down. And if the technology develops to mine in space, those calls go away, right? Because frankly, except to ensure that the orbit around the Earth and the Earth itself isn't harmed by some kind of fallout or crash or issue with the space mining operation, we don't really care what happens in the Kuiper Belt, right? We don't, we don't care, the Earth clouds too far away, but we don't care if, if we get to an asteroid, burn through it, pollute it. It's never going to affect anything living. And so a converse of one of the things that space mining promises is the extraction of resources for the benefit of humankind without many of the negative externalities associated with the, the environmental damage that can be caused by bad mining practices. I think that's a great point that you, you've both explained. And I think almost then leading into this second part, and, and as you've already mentioned, some of the tensions that are beginning to develop, what kind of activities also would Volterra Fieta be involved in? What are some of the current and future disputes that might arise in both of these areas as it becomes so highly contested and also controversial for, for many different reasons? I, I'll take that from space law and then Florentine, if, if you want to take it again, because you're the expert international seabed. Um, space mining is very interesting. And like I said, it's likely regulated. So on a long-term horizon, a firm like Volterra Fieta would be involved in policy development, assisting in drafting regulations, assisting in our clients understanding how space mining might be regulated. What we do in space law today really isn't about mining. We are experts in space operations law. That is the law governing the launch of objects from the earth into orbit. And largely the law governing satellite operations has to do with things like building the satellite, launching the satellite, where can you launch the satellite, which orbital slot, because to make sure that our satellites don't, it's not that they will crash into each other, although that is a bit of a problem, but to make sure that satellites don't, their radio signals don't interfere with each other, um, there's an international body called the International Telecommunications Union that awards to countries precisely where they can allow companies to launch satellites and then under what frequencies and strength of radio signal to make sure that effectively they don't interfere with each other. So that's a part of the law we, we deal with. We deal with, um, you know, in, in the dispute fronts, there's not as many mega disputes, that's disputes over $100 million that address space law. At, at our count internally, we've, we've, there have only been three such mega disputes in the last 10 years. And I personally have been senior counsel on two of them. So we're experts in navigating and explaining to courts and tribunals this very complex, very niche area of law and the technologies used and the technological aspects of the disputes uh, concerning space. And that's, that's what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I've, I've been doing it, if you, if you think about my professional career as a disputes lawyer, I've been doing it for all of my career except maybe six months in the beginning. 
which has been a great benefit and it's what we do with Volterra Fieta. Uh, Florentine, of course, has been been on a very interesting uh, satellite interference case with me, um, where a prominent media entity claimed that our client and government was interfering with its satellite broadcasts from uh, military installations for reasons uh, to do with censorship and political impression. And I think, although although the pleadings aren't public, I think we did a we did a fantastic job of of showing how specious the claim was and how unevidenced it was and how politically minded it was in lieu of actually doing the hard work of finding the source of interference. Um, I've done a massive case against the Republic of India, about $1.5 billion in claim for uh, denying radio spectrum to a satellite operator that was promised it by contract. And that resulted in a $675 million award uh, to to my client's benefit. So that's what we do on a day-to-day basis in space law. And uh, Florentine is, is our international seabed expert, and she'll talk about the international seabed. Sharon, um, I'll, I'll try to be, be short, because um, I think that, again, here are some of the parallels between some of the work we do in space law and in deep seabed mining. Because again, as, as Gundan says, we are those experts on those highly complex technical and legal document, international documents. So for deep seabed mining, that's unclassed, that's 1994 agreement and international regulations by the International Seabed Authority. And in terms of this disputes, um, you, you'll find those disputes, whether they arise in arbitration or before the special chamber of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, it lost. They have a special dispute a settlement chamber for deep seabed mining. And they're able to offer advisory opinions as well as to settle disputes between the ISA and contractors, but only for a certain limited type of disputes. Um, if you then think about some of the other players involved with deep sea bed mining and some of the disputes they might have, you can think about um, contractors in disputes with the sponsoring state. And sponsoring state, we haven't really talked about yet, but as a contract, if you want to mine the deep seabed, you need to get a state to agree to sponsor you. They need to give you a certificate and a special license. And with that comes certain obligations for that state. They need to have certain legislation in place, which aligns with UNCLOS and the 1994 agreement and with those regulations. And if state doesn't do that well, the state can also be liable. Again, that can result in disputes. And as Gunja and I are the expert in those international treaties and all those other international documents around this, those are the type of disputes that we advise in. So. Uh, Florentine is absolutely correct, Bram, and, and but another thing that we do on a day-to-day basis at Volterra Fieta is something called a maritime uh, boundary dispute, uh, effectively, uh, perfectly legitimately, perfectly legally under international law, when two countries are close to each other and border a sea, that is, either the coastlines are adjacent, they're next to each other, abutting each other, or they're opposing, uh, as in they face each other or some variation of the same called a concavity, i.e. what you would expect like a, like a bay, um, it is very possible for legitimately country A and country B to say, this piece of sea out there belongs to me and not to you. And country B will say the same to country A. So they, they have a dispute as to the ownership of a piece of sea. And there's around the world, the vast majority of maritime borders aren't settled because frankly, there was no impetus, real impetus to settle them as countries grew and developed. There just wasn't a reason. 
nowadays with the technological growth I've been talking about and Florentine and I have been talking about, there is an impetus to settle these maritime disputes and to raise them. And that's, that's the billions of dollars of oil and gas and minerals that could be sitting in a disputed maritime area. So what Voltaire Fieta does on a day-to-day -day basis is we handle those disputes and we advise countries in those disputes. Countries can come and negotiate and try to amicably settle those disputes. We, we help them do that. They might draw a line, they might share the area. They might enter into something called a joint development agreement, which is we won't settle the sovereignty dispute that we're having with each other, but we'll agree to, we'll agree to mine the area and we'll split the profits. Uh, and we help with all aspects of that, including negotiating joint development agreement treaties on behalf of countries. Um, sometimes, more rarely, but it happens, the, the dispute is concrete enough and the parties can't reach a settlement uh, that they litigate it before either the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, uh, before an ad hoc tribunal, or before the International Court of Justice. And we handle those disputes for countries. Uh, last year, for instance, Florentine, I, and, and the firm were on the case of Somalia v. Kenya before the International Court of Justice, which was a maritime boundary delimitation dispute the, of the type I'm talking about. Who, whose real impetus was, was the discovery of large reserves of oil and gas um, south of the Horn of Africa. Uh, and, and so the two, Somalia pressed a claim before the International Court of Justice against Kenya. That's what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And it relates to, but is not directly related to seabed mining as Florentine was discussing. Yeah, sure. Um, if I can tie that back into some of the issues surrounding international um, seabed mining, of course, you do need to know where the national jurisdiction ends in order to be able to know where the area begins. And when you there's, there's also this obligation on their UNCLOS that when you do start mining at the end of your national jurisdiction on the extended continental shelf that Gungeon spoke about earlier, you need to pay royalties to the International Seabed Authority. At the moment, no state has yet done so. But it's looking with the new technologies that some states might soon start doing that. And then we don't know yet how this entire royalty system will work. We'll know, we know some of the percentages. A state will have to start paying 1% of royalties over, over their mining profits after the first five years. But then we don't know how the International Seabed Authority is going to then distribute the, the, that money over the UNCLOS state parties. So we're interesting to see as well how that will develop. Absolutely. I can only imagine that that's going to be an area where people will be trying to, well, of course, pursue their own interests to the fullest. And I think that usually uh, brings about, unfortunately, some disputes. But thank you both for touching so in depth on both space law and deep sea mining. And I think it shows just how incredibly interesting both areas can be as we're gaining this technology and this need for these resources. So, so thank you very much for sharing your expertise there. Thank you to everyone for listening to this first episode in this two-part series. I think this is where we're going to leave it for today. I would like to especially thank our experts, Gunjan and Florentine, for their expertise and generous time. It is an honor to discuss with you. Next episode will cover the second part of our conversation, looking at how it is truly to practice and work within international law. I'm very excited to share it with you and talk to you all soon. <laughs>